Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. My name is Christian Byrne and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Myra Barrett, who's an Associate Professor of Radiology at Colorado State University. Today we're going to be talking about uh, her article, A Review of Normal Radiological Variants Commonly Mistaken for Pathological Findings in Horses. Uh, That was published with some of her colleagues from Colorado State um, and is currently available on EVE as an early view article. Um, Thank you very much for joining us today, Myra. Hopefully this will be a a useful uh, discussion, certainly a topic that uh, is commonly encountered uh, in practice. Thank you so much for having me, Christian. I really appreciate the chance to be here. So I think a useful um, place for us to start the discussion is maybe just to um, uh, pin down exactly what we mean when we're talking about what is a normal variance, I guess, so maybe just have a sort of working definition for what that might be. Right. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a good starting spot. And um you know, they, we have lovely anatomy books and we have great textbooks with images of what is, quote, a normal, say, fetlock. But we know that there's quite a bit of actual variability out there in the world. And we want to be really careful that we recognize that range of variety and understand that there are things that are normal um, that might not look exactly like they look in our textbook. And so by recognizing those that will help us, you know, avoid the mistake of calling something pathologic, which is actually a normal normal version or variant, as we call it, of, of the anatomy. Great. Thanks for that. And I think it gives us a useful uh, background setting for why these can be uh, important for us clinically. I think certainly that's, uh, I guess, a key factor is making sure that we uh, aren't trying to treat something that is is just normal. Um, we'll work through, I guess, in a similar um, uh, method that we the article structured in, and certainly the article obviously will be really useful um, uh, to go along with what we discussed today. Because actually, there's some really lovely images to to demonstrate some of what we talk about, um, but hopefully, just our, our discussion will be uh, uh, sufficient to to give picture, a clear picture in people's minds of what we're talking about too. Um, so we start off with the foot um, and really focusing on the distal interphalangeal joint. Um, the, the dorsal aspect of the joint, I think a lot of us will recognize that there's, there's maybe normal variation in there. That's probably one of the ones that comes to mind for people. Um, but what exactly are the typical variants that we might see in that dorsal region of the joint? Yeah, so that's that's definitely a tough area. And, you know, even now, even when I look at thousands and thousands of these, there's times when I do will still question the range of normal in that area. But one of the most common challenging spots is the extensor process of P3, because we know that it can present in a variety of shapes. It can be round, it can be pointed. I describe it when I teach it as sometimes it's a one-humped camel and sometimes it's a two-humped camel. And um, so we have to really get used to that range of variation. And also, you know, right next door, it's little friend on P2, the distal dorsal aspect of P2 can can be round and it can be pointed. And, you know, this is an area we're looking for osteophytes. So we need to make sure that we have a sense of the range of normal before we diagnose a horse with osteoarthritis in that same area. Okay, sure. So um, uh, obviously there's 
there's some variation there. And I guess one thing that um, you highlight in the article is maybe uh, if you encounter that and are struggling to make that decision, uh, trying to think a little bit about other um, regions on the radiograph we could maybe look for to give us a little bit more um, information or maybe help us with that decision. So what particular areas to you are useful to to focus on? Well, there's two, there's two elements for me that I put in. So one is always your good friend, the contralateral limb, right? So that's a great starting spot is just if I am trying to decide if I think that the dorsal distal aspect of P2 is too pointed or if it's normal for this horse, if it's perfectly bilaterally symmetric, it's more likely to be normal. Um, the problem with the coffin joint, the distal interphalangeal joint in general for assessing, is it is a little trickier than the other joints in that it is less prone to subchondral bone change, even in the face of more advanced disease. So for example, in the fetlock joint, where if we have joint disease, we often see subchondral bone sclerosis, we don't frequently see that in the coffin joint. So it's, it is a mm -hmm. trickier area. But what, you know, we don't only see osteophytes on the dorsal aspect of the joint. So other places to look is the palmar aspect of distal P2, the dorsal aspect of the navicular bone, because remember that is also, you know, an articulation with the distal interphalangeal joint. And then the other thing is actually a lot of the osteophytes, and this is, it's more evident on MRI, but once you start picking them up on MRIs, you see this on radiographs as well, is that the osteophytes actually typically are not even just so much dorsal as they are dorsal medial and dorsal lateral. So if we get some oblique views of the distal interphalangeal joint or even on some of our DP views, depending on how tangential we are to the joint, if we look at the joint margins on those views and we see osteophytes, that really does help confirm the diagnosis. And if we don't see them, eh, you might have to back off a little bit for that area. And then the other thing that is to me, I'm sure there's always an exception to a rule that will make me wrong, but is almost mm -hmm. pathognomonic for something particularly bad going on in the distal interphalangeal joint is when you get dorsal cortical proliferation of P2. So where the joint capsule wraps around and inserts in a fairly lengthy area on dorsal P2, if you start to see irregular and undulating bone proliferation there, and I'm not talking about just, you know, more prominence is where the collateral ligaments insert, but that whole dorsal surface becoming more irregular or proliferative, mm -hmm. that is a very strong indicator of joint disease. So that, if you have that, you can definitely rely on. Great. I think that's really useful. Some practical, uh, some practical tips for that. And I think, uh, as you suggest, I guess the more of those you can tick off, the more uh, weight that adds, hopefully, to your uh, suspicion that, that that change might be uh representative of, uh, of degenerative joint disease so I think that's really helpful um, in that context uh, you give some nice images of the um, obliques as well um, in figure one of the article so uh, I think anybody that's looking for exactly how uh, how to take those and that's I guess the go-to to to get an idea of what you're looking for with those correct Yes. Oh, and then one other thing I would just love to mention is that it's good to also get a sense of the difference between the hind and the forelimb because the extensor process on the hind limb is a little more prominent and pointed than in the forelimb. And so it's easy to mistake that for an osteophyte, but that is, it's a different shape in the hind limb. So just something else to keep in mind. Yeah. Okay. That's really, I think that's really helpful as well. Um, 
Another uh, region you discuss in the foot is the navicular bone. I think you'd be uh, remiss not to uh, to have that in there. Um, certainly, uh, the sagittal ridge, I guess, is a is a uh, a common area that we think about when we're uh, uh, assessing the navicular bone. So, could you um, talk us through some maybe uh, areas where we might have pitfalls with normal variants in that region? Certainly. So, there's definitely a range in the shape of the um, flexor surface and the sagittal ridge that's been described. And and so we can, some are more flat and some are more pointed or rounded. Um, and so it is helpful to compare from side to side because if it's flat, it could be a pathologic change or it could be a normal variant. But if it's bilateral, go, again, going back to if it's bilaterally perfectly symmetric, it's more likely a normal variant. The other thing that tends to be a bit of a bugaboo in this area is... Um, there's a little lucent area where there's a focal area of decreased mineralization and a synovial fossa in the palmar surface of the sagittal ridge. And if you capture it just perfectly on your skyline view, it'll look like a lucent area within the sagittal ridge. Now, the difference between that and an area of abnormality is that the the focal lucent area that is normal should be really well defined and somewhat the shape of a crescent moon or a semicircle mm-hmm. and with nice well-defined margins. Whereas if we have, um, you know, pathologic change in that area, it's much less likely to be so tidy and well-defined. Okay. That's, that's a helpful, um, uh, pointer for that area and I guess worth talking uh, certainly they're not always the easiest radiograph um, to acquire um, is there anything we can do um, when we're taking those radiographs um, at the time of acquisition that might make uh, you know our subsequent uh, assessment of the images a little bit easier anything to help us out there Yes. So ideally, I like to start with the lateral view, because if you start with the lateral view, you can look at the conformation of the horse, and that's going to help you plan your angle for the skyline view. Because if your horse has a more upright um, conformation, a higher heel, you're going to need a little bit steeper beam for your skyline view. And if they have a low heel, you're going to need to lower your beam. And that's Mm going to help you get you know, get through the area. And then when you look at your radiograph, you want to make sure that you see a nice crisp definition between the dorsal border of the navicular bone and the palmar aspect of P2. So that should be a nice, well-defined joint space. However, I do think even when we get our, quote, ideal navicular skyline view, the textbook view, we need to understand that that might not be our only view that we want. And consider that a lot of the lytic lesions of the navicular bone are on the distal aspect of the bone. And if we want to highlight that area to pick it off, then sometimes we need to actually drop our beam angle and do a little bit low, like a lower angle view to highlight the distal aspect of the navicular bone. And it's a bit of a funky looking radiograph. It takes some practice to get your eye used to it, but that can certainly help you see flexor cortical erosions that you might not appreciate as well on your standard skyline radiograph. So I hate to just be the add another view person to everything, but I do think, (laughs) I do think at least when it's quite important, say in a pre-purchase examination, or if you are questioning your standard skyline view, adding that additional view can really help, help answer your question. And, and, you know, 
it's sometimes that's a it's a really important question to answer, right? So so that one additional view can really be a game changer. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, as you say, it's uh, maybe you don't have to include it in all of your sort of standard foot series, but having it just in the back of your mind as another uh, option, I think is is really helpful. I guess when you've just got that decision to make about uh, uh, what to do next, I guess with that horse, and that that can be really helpful. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of us have had those uh, where you've taken a few uh, skylines to try and uh, just optimize the image and just dram- how dramatically different that region can look um, with just some minor changes, I guess, um, in your projection uh, probably demonstrates that quite effectively uh, for us all, I suspect. Correct. Totally agree. Um Next, you move on to uh, discussing the sort of Paston and Fetlock region um, and focus um, uh, on particularly on one sort of normal variant in that region um, that I guess can be confused with a, um, an osseous cyst-like lesion. So could you um, just des- describe that for us and, and uh, what we should be watching for in that area? Yes. So... Um, this is what you would call a relative lucency. So what happens in this is, it can happen in both distal P2 and distal P1, but it's a little more common in distal P1. And that is on the distal aspect, we have these two sort of prominent palmar condyles and a divot in between them, a smooth divot. And depending on what is the angulation of our beam and exactly how we are tangential to it, it can make it look like a really nice, well-defined lucent area in the center of distal P1 because you have an area of decreased bone density on the palmar aspect of P1 relative to the condyles. Mm -hmm. So how do we determine whether that's a cyst, right? Well, first of all, we just need to know that 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 lives there, that we often have a lucent area there. The other things is a true cyst will typically have sclerosis surrounding it. Um, whereas these will be a nice, well-defined lucent area, but you don't have a rim of sclerosis and you don't have any, you know, cloaca or any other changes in the bone around that area. The other thing you can do is just change your beam angle a little bit and it will, it'll shift how that appearance looks in a way that you wouldn't expect a a cyst to shift in appearance. Okay, super. So I think probably just uh, recognition that that, that, uh, exists probably as you say is is uh, is a key takeaway from that really just to uh, uh, have that as uh, highlighted in our brains that that's that's uh, a potential uh, thing to be confused with and will uh, will often appear. Um, the carpus is where you move to next, and I guess there's some discussion there about areas that can also have the appearance of an osseous cyst-like lesion. Um, which particular areas is that? Is that, um, I guess, where we're susceptible to making that assessment? Right. So I think a lot of us, um, you know, we it, it's actually somewhat similar, and I'm going to digress just a moment to what we were talking about before we started recording, but a lot of these things are things that we see all the time, and we don't necessarily really catch our eye until, say, we're trying to figure out why this horse is lame and blocks to this particular area. Mm -hmm. Um, so what will happen similar to what we might see in distal P1 is there is a, there's a fossa on the distal radius and sometimes, oftentimes it just looks more like a, a sort of a rainbow arc. So you see a, a 
well-defined top part, and then you don't really, the bottom kind of just peters out. And usually when it looks like that, we don't even really notice it. But sometimes just our angle catches that fossa just right, or that horse's particular shape of that fossa is a little more prominent so that it actually looks like a round lucency in the distal radius. And that can definitely be confused with an osseocyst-like lesion. So again, this kind of goes back to just knowing things live there and then walking through your other, other abnormality checklist. Because to have something that large be truly a cyst, you would certainly expect other bone change around it. And when it's just that fossa, you're not going to see any other bone change around it. That's really useful. I think just remembering to keep all these things in a in a context sometimes, I guess, uh, as you say, maybe that gives you the opportunity to find some extra uh, information that might uh, uh, allow you to be more confident that that is a, a normal variant. So I think that's a, a really important uh, point that you've picked up on. Um, another um, thing that we can, I guess, make conf- have confusion with is um, sometimes uh, suspecting that a horse might have a distal radial fracture um, uh, which I guess uh, can often appear on the the dorsolateral uh, oblique Um, what are we seeing when when that happens yeah so you know I think we sometimes forget because you know unlike dogs and people the ulna is so remnant in the horse but um, it's it is there and so there's actually a separate center of ossification um, in the distal radial ulnar regions, which would be the styloid process of the ulna, that, that little remnant area. And it's in babies quite apparent that it's a separate center of ossification, but as they grow and that, that area typic in most horses will ossify fully and you may not notice it, but in some horses, it'll be the little lucent remnant will remain. And in some horses, it's a much more obvious not fully ossified area of that separate center of ossification. And, and so where you see that little apophyseal physis can have a persistent loosened area. And that again, could be, if you don't know that it lives there, you have a horse that's quite lame, you're on a fracture hunt. It can certainly be something that might catch your eye and you'd wonder if it was a fracture. Um, Again, the easiest thing to do is going to be to just radiograph the other limb for comparison, but also typically, you you know, you don't see other bone change around that area. It's just a nice, well-defined, smooth, lucent area through the, through the styloid process of the ulna. Mm-hmm. Great. That's, uh, that's useful. Um, and I guess we can't really move on without talking about the first and fifth, uh, carpal bones, um, uh, obviously these can maybe vary a little bit in terms of their appearance. Uh, it might be useful if you could um, give us any more information about whether they're usually bilaterally symmetrical. Correct. Yeah. So the fifth's going to be less common than the first. We're going to see the first carpal bones more frequently. And there's quite a bit of variety. Sometimes it's just a nice little well-defined bone sitting right next to round bone sitting right next to the second carpal bone, and those are pretty easy. They get more challenging as they start to not necessarily have a really well-defined complete separation from the second carpal bone. And that sort of looks like you've you've grabbed a, a chunk of something and there's some sort of 
you know, gooey sludge that's connecting between the second and the <laughs> the first uh, carbol. I'm thinking about cleaning out pumpkins this weekend, right? And like those strands <laughs> on the inside. Yes. <laughs> it has that sort of similar appearance. And um, those are the ones that are most eye-catching and kind of make you want to say, is that pathologic? And it is tricky because they are not necessarily symmetric um, from side to side. And if you're really, you know, questioning it, you can always just kind of watch them over time and recheck them. But I've watched enough of them now that I think even though those particular type where it's not a clean separate bone can can look sort of concerning, it's still it's still in the range of of normal and incidental variant. But yes, they are, they are not, they're not unfortunately always symmetric. Excellent. So maybe uh, somewhere where we uh, can't rely too much on the other leg is, is useful to know. Um, you move on next to the elbow, um, slightly shorter section on that, but I guess um, uh, some useful things to, to just quickly pick up on. Um, uh, sometimes like the um, uh, medial lateral views can be quite difficult to assess um, as there's areas that are quite susceptible to superimposition. So which particular areas do you think that that's most important for us to be aware of? And I guess often these are, again, cases where we may be looking for a fracture or something like that, potentially in these cases, and it's easy to be uh, misled. Exactly. Exactly. You're exactly right. So it's often you're looking at the lateral view, you're chasing a, um, a lacrinon fracture, and then there's a, a quite an irregular area between the olecranon and the uh, ulna and radius and humerus, or sorry, obviously olecranon is part of the ulna, so radius and humerus. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and that, and, and it, it doesn't take, the things that will make it more tricky is if you just get a little bit of obliquity, then you start getting even more overlapping lines in that area. And also one thing that I've seen that can make it even trickier is because that area is less dense, you have less muscle there, you have less bone there. If you really upped your technique, your radiographic technique to try to really get through the elbow, so you have a little bit higher technique for the humerus and the radius, you can burn that area out a little bit, which will then even make it trickier because it'll look a little bit patchy or mm -hmm. loosened. Um, so the things to then to look for is if you still have really good joint alignment you know, that you don't see any step defects or anything else. Yep. And again, no sclerosis or any other changes, just knowing that there's quite a bit of undulation. And I will just put in, I mean, this actually applies to many of the things that we're talking about in here. But one thing I, I, I feel we have to at least mention is system differences. So there are going to be some x-ray systems, some um, image processing on your radiographs that are really going to edge enhance your images. And that can make a lot of things that are normal look more like a fracture. So if you are the um, person evaluating those images or you own one of those particular systems, you just need to, to start to recognize that a little bit more and be a little more cautious in how you interpret findings in that area because it because a more edge enhanced system will increase the appearance of it looking like a fracture versus, you know, a, a mock line or normal undulating lines within the bone. So sorry, yeah. that's a little bit of a tangent, but I do think it's a really important part of assessing these normal variants. No, I think you're exactly right. And I think, uh, as we were saying, often we uh, end up comparing what we're seeing when we get into this stage and comparing them to the textbook and actually, you know, often they're taken with very different systems. So as you say, I think probably getting familiar with uh, 
the sort of processing of your system uh, i think like you said that's a really uh useful thing i guess to take away from this just to bear that in mind that that you know it's not just your technique it's also the you know the equipment you're using as well is probably very important too Mm -hmm. exactly the shoulder i guess is another area where we um can sometimes get superimposition um how do you do you have any information in that region that's kind of helpful for deciding whether we think that's a significant lesion and i guess often in this case we might be thinking about an osteochondrosis lesion potentially Mm -hmm. yes so there is a little lucent area that we tend to see just um a little notch at this by the superglenoid tubercle and just cranial of the glenoid cavity and that little notch again when we're chasing things in the shoulder can create a lucent area and be questionable for whether you have a subchondral cystic lesion or other abnormality there however um that's actually not that you know of course abnormalities can occur anywhere but that is actually not um typically where we see osteochondrosis lesions so they're more Mm -hmm. frequently actually going to be in the more in the caudal aspect of the humeral head or the distal scapula on the more caudal aspect so that's one thing and then the other is if we do have cystic lesions within the distal scapula they're almost always surrounded by sclerosis so that is the other thing that we can that we can look for and also again just knowing that that little notch sits there and you'll have a really well-defined lucent area in that distal scapula where the notch is great that's really helpful and i think uh, highlights again i guess um the importance of sclerosis surrounding lucencies probably uh, in a lot of cases where we're suspicious of that kind of uh, lesion um uh, it's probably an important feature to to look for um next you shift focus a little bit to the hind limbs um so i think useful for us to to briefly touch on the tarsus and you um focus primarily on the the medial trochlear ridge of the talus um uh, what sort of range of appearances can we expect in that region yeah he's a tricky guy that medial trochlear ridge because <laughs> the, you know as we know that our most common areas of osteochondrosis in the uh, tarsus are going to be the distal intermediate ridge of the tibia and the lateral trochlear ridge. But it's like the medial trochlear ridge just wants to sort of prank everyone and act like <laughs> he gets them too. And most of the things we actually see there are incidental. So the two most common things are going to be sort of a either a f- little flattening or shallow concavity on the dorsal aspect of the medial trochlear ridge. And again, you know, just to keep beating this drum, the difference between that and a more pathologic lesion is you don't see any subchondral bone sclerosis. It's mm-hmm. very smooth. It's very well-defined. Um, it is not always bilaterally symmetrical. It often is, but not always. So you can't count on that. And then the other tricky thing that likes to happen in that area is what we would call a dewdrop lesion. And it's a focal um, osseous body on the distal aspect of the medial trochlear ridge, or sometimes it doesn't completely separate. So it looks more like a spur off the medial trochlear ridge, but yep. both of those findings are typically an incidental, an incidental variant. And in, and particularly for those variabilities on the distal aspect of the medial trochlear ridge, it's just really getting a sense of, of knowing that that lives there because there's quite a bit of variety in how that will look. Great. Um, and considering the stifle, um, one uh, point that you highlight is 
in younger horses, obviously that that can be a really difficult area to um, assess. Can you give us a bit more information about uh, about why that is? Yes, you know, I just honestly would like every time I have a juvenile to always have the other limb <laughs> radiographed. And I do keep a little bank of juveniles as well for comparison purposes because they are so hard and it changes. And it, this is a particularly tough area because the trochlear ridges have a lot of irregularity as they go through enchondral ossification. And when, we are, when we're suspecting a septic joint, it can be quite challenging to differentiate the abnormality of lysis because of a septic joint from the enchondral ossification of the trochlear ridges. Mm-hmm. And what I like to do, number one, is obviously compare to the opposite limb. Number two is obviously looking for other changes in the joint. So if you're, you know, if you have a huge amount of fluid or proliferation, or certainly if you have gas in the joint, that helps you, right? But mm-hmm. um, if you don't, sometimes you don't have all of those other changes. Um, if you see other areas of lysis within the bone, maybe in the condyles or deeper within the um, trochlea, that's much more indicative of true pathology. And the normal is going to be more at the surface. But okay. but you typically, yes, comparing to the other limb is going to be your most your most helpful part. And then sometimes it's also just a little bit of radiographic tracking. I think it's one of the harder areas on the subtle cases to know for sure if it's what the the range of variability is. Okay, fantastic. And um, I think another area that um, I found very useful um, was when you were discussing, uh, again, adding uh, another slight variation in uh, uh, in projection, um, and particularly with um, flexed lateral views of the stifle, um, which I think probably is something that I've not really um, uh, accounted for previously. And uh, you comment that that can be really helpful for the medial femoral condyle. So could you just give a bit more information about um, uh, that projection and, and why that can be particularly helpful? Yes, it's my beloved view, much to the dismay sometimes of people who are trying to radiograph like two or three year olds, because I will not lie, it's not the most fun view to do on a horse that's not well behaved, because you do pick up the limb and flex it um, and abduct the limb a little bit. But what you're doing by creating this, and it's not truly, it's not just a flex lateral, it's a flex lateral oblique. And what you want to do is sort of throw out the medial femoral condyle and it dis and it displaces from being superimposed with the lateral femoral condyle. It's not superimposed with the tibia anymore. And mm-hmm. that really allows us to highlight the weight-bearing articular surface of the medial femoral condyle that's most prone to abnormalities. And um, and that also gives us the sense of the whole length of it. Because we have to be, you know, we have to realize that there is, again, variability. And when we see, say, a f- it looks like maybe a flat medial femoral condyle on a caudal cranial view, that could be just an incidental flat medial femoral condyle, which is to some degree a normal variant. Or Mm -hmm. it could be that we just aren't perfectly tangential to a lesion in that area. So by adding in this additional view, we're going to get a lot more information without so much superimposition about the medial femoral condyle. Yeah, that's great. I think that was... uh as I said, a, a subtlety that I think has maybe um, uh, uh, not been something I've necessarily picked up before about how useful that can be for the medial femoral condyle. I think uh, uh, you 
you've um, published about that previously. So I think if people are interested in that, I'm sure they'll be able to, to track that um, protection down with some with some useful images. Yes. Yeah. I do think, you know, I think if I were going to, of the things that I've touted in this podcast of additional views, that additional skyline view and this flex lateral, if you were going to only add two more views to your tool chest, those would be, <laughs> those would be the ones I would beg you to add. So yeah. Um, We'll skip over then to uh, the spine. Um, the cervical spine, uh, obviously, I think uh, can be tricky. For, you know, I think a lot of us find that really tricky. Um, you focus a little bit more on um, uh, when assessing sort of C6 and C7. Uh, which variants do you think are important for us to know about in that area? Well, I think first off, it's just important to know that the shape of the C6 and C7 articular processes is not the same as at the more cranial cervical vertebrae. So they're going to be shorter and wider. And so that articular process joint at C6-7 is always a little bit bigger um, naturally. So we have to get a good sense of what is normal, you know, and so just looking at a bunch of, <laughs> you know, hopefully normal <laughs> cases um, will kind of give you you know, a sense of what it should look like, because I think it's often overcalled as enlarged. And it takes very, very little obliquity of a radiograph to make it look bigger. So we have to be very cognizant of the how straight our radiograph is before we can go too far down a path of calling that area enlarged. The mm -hmm. other thing that can be a challenge in this particular location is the um, vestigial spinous process on C7. So, you know, obviously we're very familiar with the dorsal spinous processes in the thoracic spine, but we have to remember that the cervical spine also has little tiny ones. And the one at yeah. seven, C7 can be quite variable. It can be teeny and you don't see it, or it can be very large. And, um, and so if you're not familiar with that, it's easy to look at that, or especially if it's a little bit oblique um, and it's sort of superimposing with the articular process joint, it can look like you have this big, huge osteophyte, but it's actually just that spinous process. Um, and then the other thing that can happen in this area that can get you all sort of sideways and confused is transposition of the transverse process or ventral lamina of C6 to C7. So when you're trying to look at the radiographs and count them and your typical sort of... Um, uh, sleigh runner appearance of C6. I heard Sarah Pachowski describe it that way and I love it. So I've taken <laughs> it on the sleigh runner appearance of C6. Um, when you lose that, you, you know, then it's very easy to get lost as you're counting <laughs> the, the yeah. cervical spine. So just remembering, you know, that you can have transitional vertebrae and that you can have transposition in that area um, to, to just hopefully get a little bit less lost as you're counting your, your cervical um, bodies. Great. And whilst we've been um, talking about uh, dorsal spinous processes, obviously the next uh, thing that comes to mind with that is the um, thoracic spine. Um, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, a lot of us would be used to seeing the um, irregular margins on the um, summits from sort of the cranial thoracic spine. Um, and I guess often just put that down to an, a normal finding. What, what exactly does that represent in that region? So we do have a little cartilaginous cap that sits there and it ossifies separately and it ossifies incompletely and that creates that irregular appearance. And that happens in other sites throughout the spine, but then they fill in. So actually, um, you know, if you 
radiograph or ultrasound the tuber sacrali in a young horse, it's going to look quite irregular because there is a cartilaginous cap, but that fills in pretty mm-hmm. nicely. Whereas this area in the thoracic spine, it just, it doesn't. So we just need to kind of recognize that that will look quite irregular. It also will have uptake always, you know, long lasting uptake on a bone scan too, but it's a normal, normal variant. Great. And, um, I guess useful that you highlight some areas where there might be some differences in breed in terms of the shape of the um, dorsal spinous processes. What do we know about the typical um, shapes that we should expect to see for different breeds? Yeah, so in particular, we know that thoroughbreds will often have a little bit of decreased space. They're more likely to have um, overlapping spinous processes. So there is a there is some shape change in that area. Um there is also just going to be differences, you know, horse to horse as well as breed to breed. Um, but I think in particular, keeping, you know, keeping the thoroughbreds in mind. Um, and, and then also there is, we have to be really careful when we are assessing that space between the spinous processes that what the area that we're assessing is in the center of the film, because as you get mm-hmm. to the periphery of the film, the diverging of the beam is going to alter how that space looks. And so, um, so you can't really reliably assess your spaces on the periphery of your film and you're going to have to take, you know, it's nice. Obviously we always want to minimize our radiation dose, but we Mm. need to take overlapping radiographs in that area to really center on the, um, you know, to the area of interest and also keeping in mind the horse's head position. So if the horse's head goes up or down, that will change the the distance in between the spinous processes, which has also been um, reported, which is good to have, have out in the literature. Um, yeah. But, you know, so optimally, and it's hard, right? Because sometimes you just schnocker them with sedation accidentally <laughs> yeah. and you didn't really mean to do that. And then they're either head, noses on the ground or you're holding it up. But, mm-hmm. you know, optimally, you have their head in a relatively neutral position when you um, are acquiring these images. Yeah, so don't forget the headstand, I guess, if uh, if that's what you're going to do. Yeah, I guess exactly. To take home from that, right? Um, <laughs> and I guess one thing that uh, uh, probably will have come to a lot of people's minds that we've not talked about much yet is nutrient uh, foramina. Uh, obviously, they can crop up in a few different areas and uh, and cause us some headaches. So, um, what are the features you usually look for to to characterize? You know that that's what you're seeing. Um, and uh, is there any sites that you think have been particularly challenging for um, identifying that that is just a nutrient for Amen? Yeah, you know, I think these get a lot of, they're undersold in the press of, you know, how hard they are because there is, um, there are certainly predictable sites. And then there are some that, there are some that just kind of do their own thing and they go in their own special directions. But um, particular areas of challenge, I think one is going to be dorsal P1 and that um, that can definitely be mistaken for a fracture. Um, and that was also recently described in EVE. Mm-hmm. So that's great to have that out there because it's, it's, it's the really challenging part with this nice little foramen that lives in dorsal P1 dorsal P1 in the mid-diaphysis is that it's often not bilaterally symmetric. So you can't really use the other side. And I would say that actually applies to the nutrient frame in, in general. So the other tricky place often is the cannon bone. 
Yep. So it goes back to those horses where you're on a fracture hunt and you see this weird lucent line that you're not used to seeing. Because, you know, we're all, I think, pretty familiar with the main nutrient foramen on the palmar aspect of the mid cannon. But then mm-hmm. where it goes from there is quite variable. Um, so in some horses, it goes down and some horses, it goes up and some horses, it makes angles and it doesn't. And annoyingly, it's rarely symmetric. So while yeah. while the opposite limb is often your friend, it doesn't typically help in those cases. Um, so yeah, that I'd say that dorsal P1 nutrient foramen and then the cannon bone tend to be the areas that throw people the most frequently. That's great. Um, I think that's a really good place for us to stop. And I think uh, really appreciate your uh, your time on that. It's been uh, obviously a little bit of a whistle-stop tour with quite a lot of things to cover. But um, uh, I think uh, given some really useful uh, insights, um, and as you said, often they're kind of situations where you... Uh, you just need some a little bit more information just to take the stress out of things a little bit and make you a bit more uh, concrete about what you think you're seeing. So um, thank you very much for your time with that, Ira. It's been great. You're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. I guess I just, to, to wrap up, I just really encourage people to to never feel like you have to know, you know, and to take your mm-hmm. time to compare to a lot of pre- other radiographs or, you know, phone a friend um, and, you know, because there is a lot of a lot of things that can trip us up, and we're we're, you know, everyone's just a diacom link away from each other now, so we can always help each other it's, out. You can always phone a radiologist, I guess. Right? Is another, is <laughs> so, anyways, well, I really appreciate um, these podcasts are fantastic, and thank you so much for including me in this. So, thanks for having me, and I want to just take also a moment and acknowledge my co-authors on this on the paper. Um, in particular, the first author, Frances Hinkle, who, was, who just finished her residency with me and did a great job getting it written up. Yeah, great. Thank you very much again for your time. And uh, hopefully uh, uh, everybody found that useful. Great. Well, thank you so much. Have a fantastic rest of your day or evening, I guess, for you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.